coming up on the Branding Deep Dive podcast. One of the cool things about a brand is that a brand a brand can intentionally represent the best of a people's aspirations. Mm. You know, it's almost like you know you know you know a, a really effective um act of branding is anytime you're in Egypt and I think this is probably the case in a lot of, you know, Arab countries people that see you walking past a cafe or walking past a restaurant they will often say tafaddal ma'ana like have some now they don't intend to actually dine with you the same thing with the the taxi driver who is saying khalli alayna khalis it's on the house he doesn't intend to actually give you the ride for free but in terms of generosity being an ideal of our people these little seemingly empty uh pleasantries and practices keep that ideal alive this is Ahmed Shima and welcome to the branding deep dive podcast if you're new here this is a podcast where we have in-depth discussions about what brands are doing well to drive customer loyalty and how you can take those principles and apply them to your own brand Today we're talking to Ustad Ubaidullah Evans. Ustad Ubaidullah is the resident scholar at the American Learning Institute for Muslims and teaches for numerous programs and organizations both in the Chicago area and nationally. In this episode, we dive deep into what shapes our perceptions, why Ustad Ubaidullah Evans wears the clothes he wears, what brands represent to a people, and much, much more. Even if you're not into branding, this episode is a must listen. Now, here's Ustad Ubaidullah Evans. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Thank you so much for accepting the invite. Uh, we are honored to have you on the show. Uh, for the audience that may not be familiar with uh, who you are, your work, for me, you're like a, you're a teacher. Um, you know, some of the best moments in my in my life have been in your classroom, right? And so, for the people that have not experienced that, uh, can you give them a brief introduction of uh, who you are, your background, and kind of what what you're doing right now? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. My name is Ubaidullah Evans. Uh, I am currently the resident scholar for the American Learning Institute for Muslims. Uh, in addition to, to that work, whose focus is mostly national, you know, a lot of the, the work of Alam is, is national, but I'm also uh, active locally, teaching at a few local mosques, um, also with the Inner City Muslim Action Network, and also with the Tetleaf Collective. Uh, and besides that, I think Ahmed Chima is just a, a a cool guy. And I understand that tonight we'll have a conversation about branding and, uh, you know, some different, some different things around that. Yeah. So uh, to start off with branding, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you is, um, number one, people in your space, people that are uh, seen as religious authorities, teachers, generally don't wear the type of clothing that you wear, right? And I know you have a video out there and I've seen it where you kind of explain your whole journey. Um, yeah, I, I was, yeah. what I wanna, I wanna kick this off with that and really uh, get an understanding of like why you wear the clothes you wear. Like I, I was thinking about like, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about like, why am I wearing clothes that I'm wearing? These, these are glasses, yeah. they're not even, they're blue light glasses. And I, I tell myself I wear them because I have a big screen. But in reality, I think I wear them because it makes me look smart. 
Um, and then like, I got this pullover on because I've gained a lot of weight this last couple of years and I want to make it seem like I'm athletic. You know what I mean? So um, just, just want to get into your perspective on clothing and why we wear the clothes we wear. Oh man, man, you're, you're really forcing some interest here. It's because although clothing is a place of great intentionality, you know, for nearly everybody, I mean, we live in a, uh, a consumer you know, society. And uh, almost all of us have great choice and freedom when choosing our clothes. You know, one of the most insulting things I've ever heard said about someone's clothes is, wait, you mean you chose that and there were other options? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, you know, for us, which, which is, which is, which is um, you know, not something that could be taken for granted in the past. You know, uh, in a lot of previous generations, uh, clothing was almost like a fact of life. It was just, you know, these were the clothes of your particular trade or vocation or uh, social standing or like this, you know, and maybe you had some choice in like the details, in maybe the fabrication, in maybe the color, but you didn't have a lot of choice otherwise. Uh, I think we live in a society in which things are totally open with regard to clothing. I mean, even like basic standards of dress have really faded away. Um, one person said that our lives is like a long running medley of like uh, business casual. Right. There's like there's never anywhere that you can't wear business casual. Right. Whether it is a black tie event, whether it is an outing with your children, whether it is a sporting event. Right. So formal standards of dress have nearly uh, faded. Right. You don't have to dress any particular way uh, out of fear of, you know, kind of the brunt of nonconformity. So I like everybody else, I choose my clothes uh, very intentionally. And I think this might be something particular to me. I try to choose my clothes rather carefully. Um, when I think about how I dress in particular, who, um, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's deep because when you start to explain something, it takes all of the cool out of it. <laughs> you, know you know, you know, the, the best, the best things are, experienced and not explained, but mm. I think I like classic uh, menswear. You know, I, I think my dress style is kind of conservative, um, you know, very, you know, classic, you know, uh, sportswear with sometimes an occasional, you know, Eastern flourish here or there with maybe something North African, maybe something West African, maybe something from the Levant or Syria, maybe something from Turkey, maybe something from South Asia. But for the most part, I think I enjoy, you know, what you would call like classic, you know, sportswear, but always with, I think something of, a, of an African-American, a black American uh, cultural twist. And that, 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 that tends to be about not shying away from color. Um, not shying away from more exotic kinds of fabrications, whether it's cashmere or certain kind of animal skins on the shoes. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think I think I wear you know like classic American sportswear. But in terms of my uh, position uh, 
as a teacher of the faith, I think uh, I am very intentional in wanting to uh, normalize mm. the traditions and a lot of the, you know, I guess I would call it ambient culture. Um, you know, uh, you know, being a Black American, you know, a lot of your experience is just coming to terms with all of the different historical phenomena that have shaped who you are, right? You can't really claim a kind of mythic authenticity when you're Black American, right? If, if you attempt to do that, that sometimes feels a bit contrived and forced. So if I like force myself into like a West African cultural paradigm, right? That was like completely shorn of all Western, you know, European and American influences, that wouldn't feel completely at home to me, mm. right? Likewise, uh, there is a part of me that that is striving to kind of reach across the Atlantic for something that speaks to my heritage, my history, and who I am. So I think, you know, part of being Black American is just embracing this crazy crucible of cultural influences that are as far afield as Europe, like England. I mean, of course, the English language, hip hop music is from the English language. And that is, you know, maybe a derivative of blues music and rhythm and blues music. And that has kind of cultural antecedents in Africa. And then, I mean, so it's just, it's crazy, right? It's, it, it's all crazy. But I think that I want to appear someone who embraces that as opposed to someone who's retreating from that. I think, you know, for a lot of um, Black American Muslims, and I talked about this in the video that you that you referenced, um, a lot of kind of your initial exposure to Islam, at least for me, and maybe this isn't the case for everyone, it's like you're in retreat from everything Western, everything American, almost seeing that as like, that's adulterated. That's not, that's not pure. That's not real. And whether you gravitate toward the expression and culture of West Africa or the Indian subcontinent or Arabia, it's still something that's usually in retreat from kind of the, the ambient kind of American cultural surroundings that, you know, you grew up very comfortably within. I think one thing that I, uh, what I remember in that video is you mentioned that, you know, when you came to Alim, you, you know, you were in that mindset where you're, you had a jibba on and then you saw like Dr. Jackson, you're like, man, you know what I mean? It's just like, so how did, like, what was it that really sparked that transformation where you started realizing that you need to embrace who you are versus, uh, you know, retreat from everything here? Yeah. You know, I think, I think, you know, Dr. Jackson was someone whose religious standing was uh, indisputable. You know, when I met him, it was clear that this was someone that took Islam seriously, took Islamic scholarship seriously, but he seemed very comfortable. Uh, I mean, he was just, you know, wearing like a basic two-button polo shirt and, you know, a pair of chinos or something like that. But for me, it was almost oxymoronic. Like, yo, how can you be serious about Islam mm. to such an extent that you've learned Arabic, you've lived abroad, but you're dressed in like a two-button shirt and chinos? 
Like, how does that, like, like it was almost oxymoronic for me. And the more I witnessed him just being comfortable in his own skin, the more I longed for a similar kind of comfort. And that's not to say that I don't embrace uh, the cosmopolitan kind of internationalism that comes with wearing jubbas and jalabas and shawar kameez. I think it's very cool that somebody born in America has exposure to those cultures via Islam. Like, oh man, you know, I'm drinking Turkish tea and wearing an Indonesian sarong. I think that's really cool. But to do those things in a spirit of kind of uh, cultural experimentation is cool. But to do those things while really retreating from who you are, I think I, I think that that can be a problem. Hmm. And then, um, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go all over the place as I mentioned before. Uh, really, just have like a few notes and we're, we're just trying to get through as much as I can. So, one of the things I have written down here is uh, a story of a barber when you're in Egypt. And I wrote this down as like a main point, but I can't remember what the story was. So I feel like there's a really good point here. If, if you remember what, what that's about. It's not, it's not hard to cut my hair, but I'm still very particular about the way my hair is cut. And it's usually for me about how hygienic the barber is in his practice, right? Is he disinfecting? And this is pre-COVID, but this is how you prevent, you know, razor bumps and other kinds of, you know, uh, you know, skin conditions and stuff like that. So I'm watching, is he changing the blade? Is he disinfecting the clippers, et cetera? And so this guy was good and I knew that I wanted him to shave my head. So I started trying to speak in an Egyptian dialect so as to, you know, avoid the inevitable price increase if he learned that I was American, right? But after a while, kind of the very heavy, very formal classical Arabic that I'm much more comfortable with, it just started like coming out. So he knew that I was an Egyptian. So when he asked me, where are you from? Entenmann Fain. I was like, oh, like I knew that my cover had been blown. So I just asked him in completely classical Arabic. I said, come in, which means you guess where I'm from. And he said, oh, I know where you're from. And I'm like, I know where you're from. I said, where? He said, Senegal. <laughs> I said, and I said, no, I'm from somewhere west of Senegal. And he said, there's something west of Senegal? <laughs> like, he couldn't believe that there was a world west of Senegal. And when I told him that I was from America, he said, America Chica Bica, which was like a... <laughs> like a, a line from like a, a old Egyptian movie. But then he got really serious. And he said, if you're from America, there's something I have to ask you. And I got really scared because like his, his tone became like very grave. I'm like, what? He's like, Obama. This is when Obama was recently inaugurated as president. He said, Obama, Muslim or walala? He said, Obama. <laughs> Is he Muslim or not? And I said, Obama is a is a Christian man, you know, by his own, you know, I mean, this is what this is how he, you know, identifies himself. And he said, Well, like it's Hussein, but his name is Hussein. Mafish Masihi, be Hussein. There's no such thing as a Christian with the name Hussein. 
He said, how did he get that name if he's not Muslim? And so I began to tell him that uh, President Obama's father was born into a Muslim family in Kenya. But even his father, after some time at university, initially became a radical socialist and then became an atheist, right? He became a communist. And then after that, he became an atheist. And he looked at me and he said, atheist? What is an atheist? Like, he had never heard that before. Like, this is just like your proverbial Egyptian man in the street. And he had never heard the term mulhid. And so when I explained to him what that was, he said, wow, like, I can't believe that there are actually people that completely deny any metaphysical reality. Like, I can't mm. believe that. And his concern wasn't like salvation. His concern was social. Like, how do they, what do they do when a baby is born? How do they get married? What holidays do they celebrate, et cetera, et cetera. So when I started explaining to him, many people identify as atheists, especially in Western Europe, in America, increasingly here in the Arab world, he was like, subhanAllah, glory to God. Rabbi Ahsan al-Khaliqeen, my Lord is the best of creators. And I thought to myself, that's a really strange pivot, <laughs> right? And I said, what, 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 you know, what, what caused you to say that? He said, I mean, if God can create and sustain and show mercy to people who deny his very existence, he must be a magnificent God. Mm. And I thought to myself, wow. Here is a man who just encountered something for which he had nothing in his frame of reference. Like he had no analog for that, but it didn't make him insecure. It didn't even make him feel like he has to find them and change them. It actually was something that confirmed his belief in what he believed in. The fact that somebody could be so radically different, mm. right? It was something that in a sense kind of sparked his his religious imagination, it sparked his curiosity. Like, wow, like how great is God that he can create and sustain people that I didn't even know existed up until this point? Wow. And I thought like people in America that deem themselves sophisticated don't have that deep an appreciation for difference. Mm. Mm. That's, right? that's powerful. Spiritual appreciation, like, whoa. That's deep. Wow. Mashallah. You know, and I, and I thought to myself, if I could get to that place with a lot of things that are strange to me, like if I, it doesn't mean that you don't take a moral position on them, but if you could first have just some wonderment, like there are people who do what? Subhanallah. God creates all sorts of things mm -hmm. that I have no, whoa, and then begin thinking about them, I think you would think about them a little bit differently, right? And I mean that across the spectrum. It's like, what kind of relationships? Well, I've never heard, I've, wow, that's, that's different to me, but subhanAllah, that too is something that God decreed. Mm. Doesn't mean that I don't have a moral position on it, but still recognize that it only exists because God wants it to exist, mm. right? And its existence, no matter what our moral position on it is, the existence of this or that 
is a confirmation of just the creativity of God. That's amazing to me. Yeah, you mentioned uh, like the lens, like you know, something that he encountered something that's completely outside of his frame of reference and you know the way he views the world. Um, and that's kind of where I wanted to pivot the conversation and move to. Um, do you like, I think this is a Dr. Jackson story that he mentioned, but I think he was at like a convention where they were talking about like Mozart and how great of a, you know, his memory was and all this stuff. And then uh, I think he mentioned the story of, of Imam Bukhari and mm-hmm. like someone remarked, like, that's not possible. It's not possible. Right. And so, um, just wanted, like, wanted to really just dive deep into like what, like the way we view certain things and the lens we where when we're looking at things, right, this is clearly like, oh, he can't because he's a Muslim Arab person, right? Mozart can do all this because he's, you know, European male, you know what I mean? Like, so where do we get that? And and like, how do we recognize these biases and, and things that cloud our vision? You know, man, the, the, the in, in Islamic law, there's a, a foundational legal principle that says, al-hukmu ala shay that your judgment concerning something is really just an extension of how you conceive of that thing. Mm. Right. And I would add to that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And and, and I would, I I would add to that saying how you conceive of something is really just an extension of your experience with that thing. Mm. Right. And you're not always in control. Sometimes the experiences that you have with something, are very, very intentional. They're very, very intentional. You know, I, I remember reading um, Edward Said's Orientalism. And in one passage, he was talking about the British Imperial Raj, right? When the British ruled India. And he was saying that they would make officers retire from active service at the age of 40. Right. Because they wanted their brown subjects to always see white men at their peak. I mean, I don't want like I want you to almost see us at our very best, at our fittest, at our most capable, because I don't want you to see even just the natural kind of cycle of, you know, you know, human peaks. And then, of course, the inevitable valleys. Like, I don't want you to see me in a natural way. I don't want you to see me like, yeah, I mean, at one point I was stalwart and young and sharp, but now a little bit, a little bit away, a little slower, beginning to lose some of my mental acuity. Like the fact that they were intentional, I don't want our subjects to see us in that way, Mm. is that they were intentionally trying to create uh, a certain image of whiteness. Right. Um, And likewise, we have imbibed uh, a lot of images of brownness or Indianness or blackness or Arabness or, you know, I mean, even within whiteness itself, I mean, there's a way that we depict people from the rural south. There's a way that we depict people from England. There's a way that we depict people from California. Now, What I think many of us aren't aware of is how deeply these depictions and this this image-creating enterprise has saturated our minds, right? 
even those of us that think ourselves, you know, pretty self-aware, right? So that, you know, when a black man in a professional meeting is speaking, we find ourselves listening very closely for solacisms, like we're listening very closely for grammatical mistakes, right? If he says one subject that doesn't match his verb, ah, that's it. He's, it's affirmative action. Uh, no, see, you see? Whereas a white speaker, particularly like a British speaker, may commit the same exact grammatical mistakes, but we are so convinced of the sophistication and intelligence of white British people. So it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't even set off the same, it doesn't even set off the same uh, bells, right? It's, it'll go right past you, right? In the same way that a person said, if you enter a job interview, even if you are a scientist of the highest caliber and you speak with a Southern accent, people will assume you not quite as intelligent. Right. Because there's something we attach to that draw. Even if you're saying all of the same words and the speech is just as sound grammatically in terms of standard English, there's something we attach to that that draw. There's there's an image that we don't connect with intelligence. Right. So it's, you know, the, the human mind is always forming those connections. Right. What I think self conscious people or self-aware people have to do is just to be aware of it. But I think like uh, uh, we are all subject brands, right? Which is, I I realize is the the main focus of our conversation. Branding is happening whether we know it or not. And we're all affected by it. Um, And it's okay. I mean, if you enjoy a little romance, it's okay even to, to play into certain narratives. Sometimes, but I think it's important to know that you're leaning in in that way, mm. right? It's important to know that you're leaning in in that way and that the uh, subsequent judgments that you form on the basis of those opinions could be completely inaccurate or even baseless, right? So, yeah, I think for the last 400 or 500 years, to your direct point, um, European and by extension American genius uh, is something we just, you know, we believe in almost wholeheartedly. Mm. You know, even even to the point that, you know, when I was in Egypt, I, I noticed um, a lot of establishments from nurseries to daycares to schools to grocery stores using the term modern. This is a modern daycare. This is a modern preschool. This is a modern grocery store. And, you know, I I think it was clear that uh, they had some self-doubt about uh, the modernness of their civilization. (laughs) I think think that much was clear, right? What I found interesting, like an interesting parallel, Americans very rarely use the term modern to describe anything in American society. It's almost taken for granted Mm. that if this or that thing is in vogue in America, of course it's modern. Even though when compared to like Japan, America is a technological dinosaur, right? Not nearly as advanced technologically as some other places in the world. 
right? But Americans are convinced of their modernness. They're convinced that, oh yeah, sure, right? Even, even, even the way that Americans deploy terms like freedom, oppression, justice, et cetera, progress. I, I don't consider myself a philosophical progressive or even a political progressive, but if we're judging progress by the standards that people who identify with those labels do, the Nordic countries are much more progressive than the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Much more. But Americans are convinced of, uh, you know, their commitment to freedom, their commitment to justice. So a lot of this is just really effective branding. You know, it's just really effective branding. And when you see people who believe so wholeheartedly, they're so credulous, like, man, it just makes you think, what are the things that I believe in wholeheartedly in that way? You know, maybe I try to watch myself with regard to like, uh, you know, something as obvious as like the Mozart story. But to your point, I mean, if if, if I want to be completely honest here, straight up real, one place that I do lean into some of that is like German engineering. Hmm. Are German cars really better than Japanese cars? Probably not. <laughs> no, I mean, just, I mean, I mean, really, I mean, really, probably not. But for me, Porsche, oh man, you know, they build these things, you know, Germans, man, you know, Germans in engineering, it's, you know, you know. So, you know, I, 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 I'm aware that this is a perception that has been created, has been nurtured, and, you know, I choose to attach some value to it. But at mm. least I can see when I'm doing that. When we talk about, you know, actually crafting and taking control of your brand and uh, creating your own uh, perception for your people, I think there's a lot of lessons we can take from from the nation. I have some notes here. I can read up some of the bullet points or if you want to just uh, go off the dome on that. Like whatever, whatever, whatever you prefer, man. So I mean, a couple things. One of my favorite topics, actually. Yeah. So a couple of things. And this is from for the audience that's listening. This is from Ustad uh, Bela's class on uh, the history of Islam in America at Alim. Um, just a couple notes that I took, and I'm not the best note taker, so please forgive me. But um, so nation took elements of elite white culture and made it black. Another note I had here is um, I think you mentioned a story of someone that you asked uh, and you said, what made you join the nation? Uh, and the response was, I was walking past a temple and I heard a new car door slam. Um, and then there's the concept of like self-economics. And then this is the real uh, thing that I think that uh is, is the meat here is like, they succeeded at creating an identity perceived as being Islamic, black, and it empowered them to change uh, their lives, right? And so- mm, uh, man, I mean, you, I, th- I think you're a great note taker. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the cool things about a brand is that a brand, a brand can intentionally represent the best of a people's aspirations. You know, it's almost like, you know, you know, you know, a, a really effective um, act of branding is anytime you're in Egypt. And I think this is probably the case in a lot of you know Arab countries. People that see you walking past a cafe or walking past a restaurant, they will often say, تفضل, تفضل like have some. Now, they don't intend to actually dine with you. The same thing with the, the taxi driver who is saying, it's on the house. 
he doesn't intend to actually give you the ride for free. But in terms of generosity, being an ideal of our people, these little seemingly empty uh, pleasantries and practices keep that ideal alive, mm. right? And I think that has great utility that even though I'm, I don't intend for you to actually eat with me, right? But saying have some is just a way of reminding each other that generosity is our brand, mm. right? As Muslims or Egyptians or Arabs, this is just, this is just our brand. This is, this is what we do, right? Similarly, I think the Nation of Islam, what's really special about the Nation of Islam among other um, groups that participated in the Black Freedom Movement is that for Black people in America, authenticity and I would call it having an enabling culture have always ran on different axes, right? You can do something that's very, very, that makes you feel great authenticity, right? You know, there's different kinds of religious expression, cultural expression, political expression, and you can definitely feel in those things um, a, a deeper, stronger, more prominent connection with your blackness or with your Africanity or with your heritage or with your culture, those things, those expressions of culture have always struggled to also be enabling. Meaning like, you know, okay, that's good, but we really do need better jobs. We really do need community development. We really do need professionalism. We really do need scholastic excellence. Like we actually really need those things. And so people that have, you know, focused on the other axis, you know, like let's say black conservatives, right? Focused on education, focused on professionalism, focused on, you know, amassing, you know, uh, political power, usually not grassroots political power, but engagement with the two party system in America. That has not always resulted in a great feeling of authenticity for black people. So being able to kind of merge those two axes, one of authenticity and one of producing a very enabling culture, an upwardly mobile culture, a culture, a culture that can see itself as refined, as dignified, and actually make some substantive dents in you know, a lot of the social and cultural maladies that, that have plagued Black America traditionally, very hard to do those simultaneously. And I think that the Nation of Islam created a brand that effectively, you know, that effectively fused those two areas of focus. And I don't know any group that has done so as effectively. Mm, even today? Even today, you know, usually the groups that are regarded as very authentic, their footprint, their impact in terms of substantive change is, is, is minimal, right? But they are regarded as very authentic. And likewise, groups that, that focus on like substantive change, right? Which usually involves money, involves education, um, 
um, they're not always regarded as authentic, right? They're, they're, they're seen as sellouts. They're seen as, you know, folks that, you know, do the bidding of white communities or uh, tokens, right? You know, this person is positioned there as a token, but, you know, the racism that we really deal with is, you know, still alive and very present. You know, so joining authenticity and effectiveness is the challenge in Black America. Is it possible for another movement to combine both these spectrums uh, and really create a movement like that again? I think, I mean, of course, I mean, I'm a Muslim. <laughs> you know? So I'm, 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 I'm hoping that some kind of commitment to the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad can, can be a catalyst for that kind of uh, cultural movement. Mm. You know, because one of the, you know, when I, whenever I'm thinking about this, one of the words that, that comes up quite frequently is respectability, right? A lot of people denounce respectability politics. And I, and I understand why. I mean, it's the idea that one has to engage in some kind of extraordinary shows of respectability to thwart the would-be negative consequences of racism, that is quite a silly notion. But to have something independent that you appeal to, your belief, or a commitment to prophetic conduct through which you aim not to be respectable, but to be righteous. I think that's a very, very important contribution that uh, Sunni Muslims have to make to kind of, you know, some of the intramural conversations about race in the Black community. Is there anything else you want to touch on, Alim, or, or share with the audience on uh, anything, like how to find you or anything like that? You're not on, like, social media or anything, are you? I'm not, I'm not on social. You know, I'm not, I'm not ready for social yet, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not ready. I got, I, got, I got to go back and prepare. But um, uh, I, I want to thank my brother Ahmed Chima for giving me a space and allowing me to come on. And, uh, you know, this, this topic, I, I really think that we've only scratched the surface. You know, we've only scratched the surface because, you know, so much of um, branding, and, and this is what you wanted to converse about, you know, involves, you know, how we see ourselves and how we see others, you know, mm. um, and um, to recognize that both of those, how we see ourselves and how we see others are sometimes the product of great intentionality, that you have people uh, feverishly working to, to shape, to mold our self-perception and our perception of others, you know, to, to certain, um, you know, very specific contours should just make us, you know, careful, you know, mm. about, 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 you know, um, the images that we, that we accept. And it doesn't mean, I mean, again, it's inevitable. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, when someone says such as comes from a good family, that is a kind of branding, mm. right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a shorthand, meaning I don't know them as an individual. I've never had any, an experience with them, but they come from a good family or such and such graduated from this or that school. I can't really confirm on the basis of experience that she's intelligent or that he's intelligent. But I mean, she went to the University of Chicago. 
That's branding, mm-hmm. right? Or he went to Uzhaf. I guess he would know something about Islam. <laughs> Maybe I don't know anything about Islam. That's branding. But to, to recognize the difference between the brand, which, again, I, 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 I think this topic is deep, actually. And I actually don't have a problem with brand. I think branding is inevitable. You know, but recognizing that brand and merit are not the same thing. Mm. You know, even a you know, quick, quick example, you know, even like uh, with like street cred, like street cred, you know, when when a certain area gains a reputation for something like, you know, these guys are tough or this, this or that thing. When someone says they're from that place, you just associate them with that brand. Oh man, they're from this place. Oh, they're from that place. Doesn't doesn't mean that they actually uh, live up to whatever the brand is. And so, I guess to put a cap on this, um, I heard Dr. Cornell West say about this topic, but speaking about colleges and universities in particular. The question is not whether or not you went through Harvard, but does the best of Harvard go through you? Mm. That, that's, the, that's the question. See, the question is not, did I go through Azhar? That's not the question. Does Azhar go through me? Mm. That is the question. You see? Mm. And that's that. I think about that statement whenever I think about branding. So initially, I was planning on recording a separate segment talking about Alim, how you can sign up, where all the details are. Uh, but after we recorded, me and Asad al actually talked a little bit about Alim. So I'm going to share that with you before we get into the key takeaways from this episode. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? Oh, just that the Alim, just want to invite people to the Alim program, because if I don't do that, Shireen Khan will kill me. <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure I put that in there. Don't worry. I, like I'll I'll do a full. Uh, oh, so I'll, I'll put the links and everything. This year the program is July sixteenth to August seventh, and we're back at Benedictine in Lyle, which is about thirty-five minutes outside of Chicago. It's a transformative, life-changing uh, program. Uh, I recommend that everyone who can attend attend. Uh, they won't regret it. It's very special. It, it, it's great. Like I, I, I went there and I think it was 2015, uh, no, 2016 and Alhamdulillah, like I, I still have Your town would have seemed so much more recent than that. I know, I, I know. <laughs> and I, like, honestly, I still have like my entire notes and like every once in a while I'll just go through and it's just like, like some of the words I don't even, like I have to look up the dictionary because like when I was there, you guys are all using these big words. Like I don't use it. I'm like my day to day. That's not a, that's not a merit. That's a demerit. The goal of communication is to, to, to impact the speaker, not just uh, as Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah used to tell me, we don't speak just to fill the air with sound waves. Mm. You know, we speak, we speak to affect people. So if I was using words that you didn't know, then I got I to gotta go back and work on my speech. No, no, no. It wasn't not like that. I was just, I was saying like the, everyone's vocabulary level, I think went up a notch because you're, you're around so many like academic people that are, and then like you, you start to lose some of those words because you don't use them as much. But like when you're in that environment, you know, you, you pick yeah, up on it and it makes sense. I, and I, I'm like, every time I hang out with Dr. Sherman Jackson, when I pick up at least 
10, 15 words. If you enjoyed this discussion with Ustad Abedullah Evans, I am sure you will love the Olive Summer Program. Registration is now open. Check out the links in the description for more information and to sign up today. Now here are my key takeaways. Number one, as Ustad Abedullah mentioned, your judgment concerning something is really just an extension of how you conceive of that thing. And how you conceive of something is really just an extension of your experience with that thing. In the branding space, there's a lot of debate about what the actual definition of branding and brand is, but a lot of the definitions sound pretty similar to this. It's about shaping a person's perception about a company or person by being intentional about the experiences that they have with the brand. And number two, branding is happening whether you like it or not. The perceptions we have were carefully constructed by someone else. It's important to understand and be aware of that. And that is all for this episode. If you enjoyed this discussion, please consider leaving a review and sharing with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.